Welcome into the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it is a pleasure to welcome onto the show Sir Peter Gluckman, who was Chief Science Advisor to the Prime Minister of New Zealand from 2009 to 2018, serving three Prime Ministers, John Key, Bill English, and Jacinda Ardern. He's also the director of COI2, the Center for Informed Futures, a New Zealand-based think tank looking at some of the most pressing issues we're all facing as a global community. Today we'll be talking about the role of chief science advisors, how science and policymaking works together, the interaction between science and diplomacy, and we'll have this discussion within a backdrop of declining public trust, increasing misinformation, and the devastating effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As mentioned today, it is my pleasure to welcome Sir Peter Gluckman onto the Do One Better podcast, who served three New Zealand Prime Ministers as Chief Science Advisor. Sir Peter, welcome onto the show, and why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background and COI2, the think tank? Well, well, perhaps a more relevant background, funny enough, is the other hats I wear. Firstly, I'm president-elect of the International Science Council, which is the global organization of science, which brings natural sciences and social sciences together and works very closely with the UN agencies over sustainability, over human development, uh, and, and is the principal connection between the science community and the UN multilateral system. Mm-hmm. And within that, I'm also chair of the International Network for Government Science Advice, which is focused on the issues of how science can better inform policymaking. And of course, during COVID, we've seen suddenly the role of science and its relationship to policymaking far more acutely in the public eye. Now, it's not always easy. Uh, science is basically uh, focused on what we know, what we think we know, what its implications are from from a uh, robust evidence basis. Mm -hmm. Policy making, of course, is based on many other values-based domains, uh, diplomatic considerations, fiscal priorities, political agendas, ideologies, and so forth. And bringing those two together, even in COVID, has not been smooth. One of the interesting things is, has there been enough plurality of input into the the discussion? For example, uh, the early days was all dominated by epidemiologists and virologists quite properly. 
But now the issues are as much about social uh, uh, well-being, economic well-being, and many, and now geostrategic issues are well applying into the agenda. And so how science and policy making works together is a particular focus of mine and also the focus, the interaction between science and diplomacy. And we're in, in that role, I'm now chairing or leading on behalf of the International Science Council, this project of where we're looking at what are the likely scenarios ahead for the COVID pandemic uh, and what decisions made now by various actors, in particular state actors, might influence whether the pandemic takes a relatively short time, maybe one to two, three, three years to fully unfold, or whether it may, may take much longer. If you think about it, the you've got issues around the, the virus and its mutations, the vaccine and how effective it will be, how rich countries can afford vaccines, how poor countries may not, and the, and the adequacy of supply, particularly to low-income countries, is low. We've already seen geopolitics enter into vaccine distribution. Uh, we Then you've got the profound social effects that we've seen uh, in many countries, in fact, in all countries, mental health effects, some of which will be long-term and sustained, particularly for young people that had their schooling disrupted, particularly for people whose lives have been disrupted because the jobs they were doing, for example, in the airline business may have evaporated uh, and so forth. Then you have the economic uh, implications, which are complex and will evolve over time with the very changed supply lines, uh, business investment decisions and so forth that are being made against uh, a, a recession which is quite broadly based in some countries. And then you have the geostrategic issues. And we're already seeing geostrategic issues. They played out from the early days of the pandemic in the case of this, between China and America. They still can disrupted how WHO operated, and it still continues. And we're seeing vaccine nationalism, vaccine politics playing out now. Now, so this working group I lead, which is also in partnership with, uh, with observers from the WHO and United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction, is trying to explore what decisions different actors will make will mean that, that takes these this group of uncertainties and makes it either prolonged or less prolonged. We're in for a long haul here, and I think it's quite concerning that many people think that just because we now have the vaccine, it's all over. We've got a lot of, uh, of consequences to deal with over a number of years. And at current vaccine rates, production rates, it will be several years before the whole world is vaccinated. And if the whole world is not vaccinated, then we will see problems continuing over travel, outbreaks for people who choose not to be vaccinated and so forth. The other thing that the, the pandemic has exploded is misinformation and anti-scientism. And we've seen this linkage between anti-scientism and political movements and willful misinformation starting to emerge. And as pre president-elect of the International Science Council, I'm very worried about this trend and we need to think about how we address the reality that 
that science and the processes of science, both natural and social sciences, are the best way we have about understanding or getting a sense of understanding of the world around us and within us. So there's many challenges that COVID's exposed, but I could take the same thing, remove the word COVID and replace it with sustainability and climate change. And you would see the same set of issues emerging, tension between the science community and the political community, the role of special interests and misinformation, the fact that we're dealing with very complex issues where the world needs to work hand in hand rather than being dominated by selfish nationalism. So I think while I've focused here on COVID because it's around us at the moment, there's so many lessons from COVID for dealing with the great exist other existential challenges we face, which are encapsulated within the sustainability agenda and the human development agenda. Mm. Let me ask you on that point about misinformation and declining public trust. How do you think we could start tackling this declining public trust and this misinformation that's out there? And because the average person is very time constrained, they're, they're cluttered with information, they're not necessarily uh, academically inclined. Uh, what's the deal? How, how can we... How can we tackle well, this there's issue? There's, there's several dimensions to that question. At one level, I think this is the heart of the revision that will have to occur to the education system. At the end of the day, education is no longer going to be about just providing facts because facts, whether they're true or not, can be found on the internet by every, every child. The issue is critical thinking, assessing of the information, understanding the source of the information, and having basic literacies beyond numeracy and reading, but into science literacy, civic literacy, and so forth. So there's a fundamental shift going to be needed in education to deal with the digital age. The second issue you raised, however, is about trust. And societies rely on two forms of trust. They rely on trust vertically between those in power and those who are ruled. And we've seen in many countries that trust threatened or undermined by the behaviours of those in power. And that unfortunately flows from loss of trust in the power and the elite who are powerful, the political elite, to loss and trust in other elites, such as scientists and so forth. So there is a real issue of the behaviour of the political class in many countries. Fortunately, not in New Zealand, where we have good, strong, what I call vertical trust between people and, 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 and the people who rule them, irrespective of who's in power. And that flows through that we have a high level of trust in other components of the elite community, including science. But there's a second form of trust, which is equally important, and that's horizontal trust. There are, every society has diverse groups with diverse world view, views within it. They do not have to agree on everything, but they've got to be, agree to collaborate to have a healthy society. And what we've seen is that horizontal trust, also broken uh, by various actors using misinformation, using social media, using Twitter and ad hominem attacks. And we've changed the nature of the discourse, which is fracturing in many societies horizontal trust. And because horizontal and vertical trust are so intertwined, 
This leads to the other big existential threat we're seeing, I think, across many Western societies and many societies, which is the loss of social cohesion. And with, because ultimately social cohesion is a reflection of vertical and horizontal trust within a society. And I think in countries like Europe and North America uh, uh, and so forth, we're seeing that fracturing at a rate that I don't think anybody had predicted. And while it has many, very many elements to why it's happened, including the behavior of politicians, including the behavior and the fracturing of the press, including uh, perhaps the, the role of external actors, perhaps the biggest single factor has been the way social media has empowered misinformation, uh, ad hominem attacks, et cetera, et cetera, and fractured both vertical and horizontal trust in society. And the challenge is we can't turn off the internet. Uh, so, so there's a fundamental change of how we learn to, how we recreate civil society, cohesive society in a world that is, uh, that has got this digital framing to it. Uh, and this in turn undermines democracy because the principles of democracy should not be based on who screams loudest or who has the, the biggest attack line on Twitter. It should be based on an informed electorate making choices about both the short and long term. And I think that that's all got lost in the last few years. And I think that uh, Philip Kitcher, the philosopher, talks about vulgar democracy. And I think we're actually in a, a, a period of vulgar democracy where so much of the decision-making in so many countries is dominated by factors other than thinking about our environment, our middle to long-term future, the next generation, and indeed the economic situations we all live in. So we've seen this explosion of gross inequality of wealth, uh, concentration of power, uh, there's many aspects to this which are, all sound disconnected, but they're all part of this fundamental transformation we're going through with a very rapid change in the nature of how societies operate. And I've written books about with my colleague Mark Henson actually on the issue of what the fundamental changes that this digital milieu is making to the shape of society, to our own selves and our own psyches, and to the ability of the nation state to actually govern. Mm. And so there's some very profound things going on here, which are not easy to discuss, because actually nobody actually has the solutions to, to what to do about it. But we should not be mindless of the problem. If we at least discuss the issues, we will start to find solutions. It's no different than the sustainability agenda. Uh, we are now, I mean, one of the things that COVID has brought about is the sense in many people that this is a time for a reset, that it's a time to think fundamentally about the other existential challenges we face of climate change, biodiversity loss, food security, and so forth. And that is something which I think has got to be encouraged. And it was one of the reasons we set up our think tank, Koi2, Koi2 is the Maori word for the tip of the sphere, sharp tip of the sphere moving forward. In other words, we want to be clear 
about the questions we need to understand about our middle to long-term future. Policy making has become very short-term, very short news cycles on the immediate next electoral cycle, not adequately thinking in most countries ahead. There are exceptions, but in general, moving ahead to think 10, 20, 30, 40 years ahead. And we need to get better at thinking ahead, uh, otherwise we face calamity. Mm. And how frustrating do you find it then when people are saying, well, climate change, is it really happening? Or vaccines, well, are they safe for me? Should I not take them? What's your, how frustrating do you find the whole thing? I'm not sure frustrating is the word, because it's the right word, because I think it's a failure at many levels. It's a failure of the media, it's a failure of science communication, it's a failure of policy communication, it's a failure of the political system, it's a failure of the multilateral system. It's a, 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 it's a reflection of, uh, of nationalism uh, in a way that will lead to a tragedy, it could lead to the tragedy of the commons. And therefore, I think it's not a matter of being frustrated, it's a matter of saying, what can organisations like the International Science Council, the International Network for Government Science Advice, the uh, think tank I run uh, in Auckland, what can we do to contribute to the change in the conversation? At the end of the day, we have nearly 8 billion people on the planet. It's their planet that it's not for scientists to tell them what to do. It's for scientists to give them the knowledge so they, so they can think and reflect and make the choices for themselves. The issue is, will politicians listen to their people? Mm. And so what can you do? What, what's, your, what's your suggestion in terms of rectifying the state of affairs? I think there's a strong plea for the multilateral system to look at ourselves, itself. Uh, if you think the current multilateral system was a child of the Second World War, where we saw the development of the UN system, the Bretton Woods system, IMF World Bank, where we saw the start of decolonization, we saw the women's equity start to emerge and, and a greater focus on human rights. And all of that happened after the infection point of the Second World War. The issue is whether the, uh, the, the COVID crisis is sufficiently impactful on the way uh, the global policy community thinks for there to be an infection point here. For example, and, and that I don't know the answer to, but there's certainly a lot of people which hopes that it would. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it all sounds very sobering and a little bit unsettling here. Well, uh, unsettling is important because if people uh, think that we can just go back to business as usual, we will go back to business as usual. I happen to think that business as usual is not viable because there's been some fundamental shifts in the way the world works and operates as a result of COVID. And I think that rather than being, being negative, we should take the opportunity that COVID creates for more fundamental conversations in every society about the other existential threats we face, climate change, loss of social cohesion, the rapidly rising rate to mental health morbidity in, across the world, uh, the potential for technological disruption, and of course, the ongoing issues of geostrategic conflict, uh, which have not, not gone away, that just changed their shape in different ways. 
And I think that we've got to be think take the lessons from COVID and think about how they apply to other existential threats. For many of my age, this is the by far the biggest existential threat we've ever confronted. You know, people who we didn't live through the Second World War. We didn't go to, I didn't, we weren't involved in, in, in conflict. Uh, and this is a fundamentally very different kind of episode to anything that most people alive today have previously faced. Not counting those poor people who are caught up in conflict zones uh, with, and refugee camps and so forth, who are facing existential threat in a very different context. And again, something that the world has not managed to address. Mm. What are some of the diplomatic challenges we're looking at? If we're sticking with the current uh, challenge that's on everybody's headlines right now with COVID-19, what are the diplomatic challenges around COVID-19? Well, they largely relate in the short term to vaccines. They largely relate to making sure the vaccines get to the places where they're most needed. They relate also to think issues like vaccine passports or whatever, however we're going to promote freedom of movement in a safe way. They relate to preparing for the next pandemic because uh, there will be another one and there needs to be lessons learnt from what did not work well in, in the early stages of this pandemic. Uh, uh, there's a whole lot of issues. For example, there's quite a lot of discussion about the need probably for some form of new treaty or framework convention to strengthen notification around zoonotic or inf uh, potential infectious diseases, uh, to look at the international health regulations, international health law, to strengthen uh, the ability, uh, the country's uh, responsibilities for notification and sharing of information. There's quite a lot to do in the diplomatic space that's directly related to COVID or flows directly out of COVID. You know, the, if you look more broadly, at the, you know, we, we talk about 2015 as a year in which we had the, uh, the famous Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The other big agreement of that year was the Sendai Framework Agreement on Disaster Risk Reduction. And disaster risk reduction was, is, is about countries agreeing to work together to reduce the, the risk of various threats of many, many kinds, from natural disaster threats through to uh, technology threats to pandemics. And the sad reality is not many countries were well prepared for this pandemic. Uh, the countries that did best and were well prepared were those that had had experience with SARS, like, uh, like some of the East Asian countries. The other countries that did well, like New Zealand, are countries that had the advantage of a moat and had, a, had governments that responded very quickly to the advice that the best thing to do was to keep the virus out rather than to cope with the virus after it had got into your population. And so they're the countries that have done well, and they're not always first world countries. If you look at countries like some of the Pacific Island states, look at Cambodia, Vietnam, the, uh, Rwanda, these countries have done very well by, by, by recognising that evidence can be used to make acute decisions. Unfortunately, uh, many countries did not have an extant science advisory mechanism, and I'm worried that not many countries are picking up and realising that 
they had to create ad hoc mechanisms during COVID, should they re think about whether they now need to institutionalise mechanisms uh, to deal with the many other issues where science can help governments make better policy, be it around social development, human development, environmental protection, and, the, and in the economic space around innovation. There's so many ways in which governments could use science better. And one of the particular ways they can use science better is in diplomacy, because many of these issues are now transnational. Uh, and, and so that's an area in which there's a lot of discussion underway. Yeah. On the international arena, uh, from a scientist's perspective, what is the optimal way to distribute vaccines? Well, I mean, from a scientific point of view, you want to get it to the people most at risk. And the most, most at and and obviously one needs to have adequate production because everybody, including myself included, and I haven't been vaccinated yet, uh, uh, wants the vaccine tomorrow. So there is, uh, there is both, what I'm worried about is the fierce vaccine nationalism that's emerging, that's restricting exports of vaccines or demanding that the country uses this vaccine, not that vaccine. And I think, you know, obviously supplies have to build up. It's going to take a while to build up supplies. And in doing that, we could end up in a situation where the first world or the developed world, in many cases, is well vaccinated, although I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, whereas the developing world, where the need is great, has little access to vaccines. But I have to say that I am surprised at the level of resistance in some countries to vaccination. And of course, if the level of resistance stays high, then the advantages of vaccines at a national level, not at an individual level, will be lost because if herd immunity is not obtained, then healthcare systems will continue to be overburdened with people with significant illness. And, you know, at the moment, while medical care has done well to reduce somewhat the morbidity of, the, of, of COVID, the sad reality is there are still many, many people dying of the disease, many others surviving but with long-term consequences, and many others having a rocky road. So we shouldn't and there have been people trying to downplay the virus, we mustn't. We've got to find the ways to actually get sufficient vaccine out there as quickly as possible to allow societies, economies to move back towards some sense of normality. And I think one of the things I'm observing with alarm is the premature relaxing of the only tools we have masking and social distancing and related uh, decisions in countries that still have relatively low levels of vaccination and with, with high prevalence of COVID in their societies. And they're going to see the third, the fourth, the fifth wave if they don't realise that there are countries that have had significant outbreaks, but by not being premature about removing uh, those social distancing, masking, and other related requirements, they've managed to do it. Australia, there's the state of Victoria managed very well. Iceland managed well. Vietnam managed well. There have been countries that have had outbreaks, but by being not being premature in, address, in relaxing, they've managed to get it under control. Uh, and I think that there's not enough 
recognition that the sooner we get this thing under control properly, the sooner the, the world's economy, the world's society can move back towards some sense of normality. Hmm. There's short-termism coming into it all the time. Yeah. Now, maybe there's a, a little bit of tension between two fields, and I'll, I'll put it to you. From a science perspective, get everybody vaccinated. From an ethical perspective, some people don't want to be vaccinated, and that's, you know, that's a prerogative. Some of the questions coming in, particularly in the UK, are around, for instance, do we make it obligatory for all healthcare workers to be vaccinated? Do we require uh, travel passports that state whether you've been vaccinated or otherwise? And what are the implications on, on that front? Well, I think these are deep ethical issues. And in fact, on the ISC project, we have ethicists involved because these are not issues for scientists alone to offer, to answer. They are values-based decisions. Quite clearly, from a scientific point of view, the closer to 100% of vaccination we reach, the, the, the healthier the, the, the population will be, and so will healthier the economy and healthier the society. But I fully recognise that these are that there are value judgments that every individual makes that makes, and it is difficult to balance that out. However, I think it is worth finding out what the value, what the objections are based upon. In some cases, it's based on misinformation. On some cases, it's based on a philosophical basis. On on on, on other cases, it's based just on. I like to wait and see how other people get on and is it safe. And, and I mean, I think we now have a large volume of people that have been vaccinated in countries where it's been very well documented. Israel would be an example of a country where the amount of information about the vaccine safety is phenomenal. And I think that there have been a lot of misstatements. There are a lot of people living off anecdote rather than of fact. And I think, again, the media has a lot to help here with social media or the traditional media, government in places where government is trusted, at least the scientific community in general, to make sure that that information is accessible. I mean, you can't expect that people are going to get on the web and look up a whole lot of technical papers. And, and there's 30,000 papers about COVID out there now, probably more. Uh, and how many of them, uh, you know, and they're very technical, many of them. I think the science communication business and most scientists in one way or another are involved in the business of science communication needs to get far better working with ethicists, working with social scientists, working with communication scholars, on making sure that reputable information is accessible to every person on the planet, particularly on this issue of side effects and safety of the vaccines and how efficacious they are. And it's hard stuff to read. It does need to be turned into language that people can understand and you know, anybody who reads a scientific paper on vaccines or on viruses or immunology will see that it's a world full of jargon, uh, very dense jargon. And you occasionally are not even so seldom hear a lot of 
consequential policymakers making statements about vaccines that aren't necessarily aligned with what you would think of as uh, hard science. Oh, yes. And I mean, that's where the issue of how evidence and policy come together, evidence and politics come together, uh, is very different in countries like New Zealand or the United Kingdom or Canada, uh, or now under the Biden administration in the US, uh, against countries that don't have that strong tradition of respect for for knowledge and linking and and where the policy community understands that knowledge has a lot helps them make better decisions for their citizens. Is it challenging as a scientific advisor, whether that's you or very challenging because yeah. first of all, no decision a government makes is free from considerations that are non-scientific. Obviously, every policy decision, what is policy? At the end of the day, policy is a matter of a government making a choice. It always has a choice to do nothing. So there's always one choice on the table, status quo, or to do something. And the differences between those choices are that they affect different stakeholders in different ways, with different spillover consequences. What evidence can do is explain what the consequences of each option are. But the choice of option is not just based on evidence. It's based on which stakeholders are affected, what are the political objectives of the party in power, what are the financial implications, what are the public opinion, what are, the, what are some of the other considerations, reputational issues that may occur. And so as a science advisor, one... I, I felt strongly my role was to be a broker. I was the translator. I don't know every field of science. I can't possibly know every field of science, but I can be the translator from the world of science to the world of policy and politics and the world of policy and politics to, to, the, to the science community. And often, so often it mattered that there was a clear understanding of what the science was actually saying. Sometimes it was unclear and I had to be eh, dissect that out. Equally, scientists often will want to advocate for a particular position. But as a science advisor, what you're trying to do is not advocate, but make sure that the government of the day has the, the knowledge on which to base their decision-making once they put on the values domains. So it's, a, it's a interesting. Is it frustrating? No, it's, it, you've just got to go in understanding that there will always be other considerations other than the science consideration. And you cannot be a good science advisor unless you understand the policy process. Now, you also have to stay fiercely nonpartisan. And I insisted that I had to be nonpartisan, which meant that I also talked to the leader of the opposition as well as to the prime minister because I believed it was important that, that the leader of the opposition accepted I was doing the best by providing the executive government with scientific information to support their decisions, but was not trying to make it into uh, policy-informed evidence, but evidence-informed policy. Mm. One of the things that worried me a little bit in the pandemic is how often we've heard from so many politicians, we're just following the science or the science advice when clearly there's been a political overlay on it. 
And I think they should be more honest and say, the science told us to do this, we accept that, but for the following reasons, we also uh, are altering it in a slightly different direction. Mm. Now, that's not just you, right? I mean, there are science advisors to heads of government and heads of state throughout the planet, and you chair the international network. Not that many, not that many, funnily enough. It's largely in the Anglophone world. In the non-Anglophone world, there are many other ways it's achieved through academies, through committees, and so forth. But the Anglophone world has got a particular model, which I think allows for the Prime Minister, the President, to have a direct conversation with a science advisor or a minister to have a direct conversation with a science advisor in a way that's not possible through a committee process. Mm -hmm. Remember, they, they don't want to expose their ignorance in public either. And sometimes you're having to deal with some fairly basic lack of understandings that have to be explained. Now, you were chief science advisor to the Prime Minister of New Zealand, a former guest of ours, Sir David King, had a, a similar role here in the UK. Um, do you guys exchange notes, not just you two personally, but between science advisors and this network of, of, of uh, advisors, government science advice that you're uh, leading? Yes, there's a lot of exchange and formal networking. Sometimes it's quite formal, but in general, it, there's a lot of collegiality all said and done. We're dealing with different, the similar problems. Sometimes we even peer review each other's work if, it, if, it, if it's appropriate. Uh, sometimes we work together on things, but there's an awful lot of phone calls, Zoom calls, telephone calls in people at this interface who may be science advisors, academy heads. There's 5,000 people in over 100 countries in the International Network for Government Science Advice. Some of them are quite junior, but some of them are, uh, are the very senior people whose names you would recognise. Mm. Policymakers also have limited bandwidth. They can't deal with too many issues at once, and they will lurch to problems when an externality, like uh, something in the media, drives them to do something. You've got to be ready, I wouldn't say to pounce, but you've got to be ready when the opportunity comes to put the issues on the table. At the same time, there's a different kind of policy making, the kind of more deliberative policy that might come out of a ministry. And what you're doing there is working with that ministry so they have access to the information they need because often Wikipedia or Google is not an adequate source of information for the kind of matters we're dealing with. Now, that's particularly so for the matters around sustainability, climate change, all the, once you get down to the nitty gritty of emissions trading or thinking about forest and carbon capture or storage or the role of forestry or changes in energy systems, there's very technical issues that need to be worked through. And you need to make sure that agencies such as governments, ministries, have the right expertises available for what it is that they're doing. It's certainly not going to be me. Uh, it's, it's going to be making sure that the right people are in the room. And so the British model, which is also the New Zealand model, is to have science advisors distributed through all the ministries of government. Now, what I'm hearing here, if I understand correctly, is that as a chief science advisor to a government, to a prime minister, it's, it's, it's a good thing to have a sharp political instinct, even if you maintain yourself 
in a nonpartisan manner. Well, you've got to, you're a form of diplomat. The way I see it is you're a bit like the translator, uh, uh, but uh, you know who is in a in a in a diplomatic meeting between two countries that don't speak the same language. You need to understand the culture of both parties. You need to understand the hidden meanings in their words. You need to un have a diplomatic nose in the right sense to keep the discussion on track. And I think that's what science advising really is. It's a diplomatic skill um, of a person who understands the culture of science and has access to the science community and is respected by the science community, but at the same time knows enough and has act and is respected within the policy community and understands a very different culture, not just the policy community, but the political dynamic that's in play, which will vary depending on the nature of the constitution in different countries. Hmm. Before we wrap up, and we've covered so much ground here, do you have a key takeaway for our audience? And that can be anything at all, whether it's a philosophical observation, a vantage point, uh, that you'd like to share as a, as a chief scientific advisor? What I would, well, my key, key takeaway would actually be we need more honest conversation. Our conversation in the last decade has been dominated by Twitter, by very polarized media, by, by short-term, you know, 30-second slots on TV by politicians and very antagonistic discussion. There's been few fora uh, that the public sees that allow for the kind of conversation the public needs to be part of. And I think if we could see a way where it's using podcasts and other methodologies to promote engagement on these matters that all parts of the community can engage with and think about in a respectful way, we don't all have to agree with each other. We never will all agree with each other. But we need to be able to talk to each other to find a consensual way to address problems that are real. And I think we've lost that ability in many ways to talk to each other. We're very good at talking past each other. Mm. And on that note, I thank you very much for your time and your insight. It's been very much appreciated. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in today. It's always very much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. For a full transcript of today's conversation, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org, where you'll also be able to find information on 100 other conversations with remarkable thought leaders. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.